welcome to Hachayim's Thursday night class, the series It's All About Soul. Tonight's topic is kosher lying, question mark, exclamation mark. Uh, tonight's class is not an easy class to give. It's actually, uh, I would use the word dangerous class, because we're going to talk about some concepts which could lead to a lot of trouble. Once lying becomes kosher and even holy, then everyone becomes his own God. Everyone becomes his own Torah to decide when, where, what. So uh, I'm going to give this class, and I just want to put a disclaimer that to appreciate this class, there must be a very strong level of maturity in understanding the Torah. There is, there is no games to be played. Um, we never justify doing what's wrong, and we'll discuss that in this class. But nevertheless, something very peculiar happens this week. Jacob, who is called Ishtam, a man of simplicity, honesty, he lied. He lied, he tricked his father, and he stole the blessings that belonged to Asaph, according to his father's wishes. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to focus on this concept. It's a very bothersome concept. How could Jacob have done what he did? In Judaism, the ends never justifies the means. There is an outright law in Jewish law. Mitzvah haba avera. A mitzvah that comes through an avera. I stole something and then I used it for a mitzvah. You, can't, you don't have that. Mitzvah haba avera is not good. Not good. Not allowed to even pray in a stolen book. It's not so simple. You can't make a blessing on something stolen. So how did Yaakov do what he did? In the uh, invite I sent out from Facebook, I always send out an invite for this class, I quoted over there another two topics that I'd like to touch upon tonight in the same vein. Mashiach. Mashiach is the completion of all mankind. In Judaism, Mashiach is not a son of God any more than you and I are. In, in uh, Judaism, Mashiach was born to a man and woman that have children just like everyone else has children. He's a human being. He's born an infant. He grows up and has a soul like the rest of us. But he's the perfection of you, humanity. And if we look at Mashiach, we're going to find something very peculiar. You would expect the pedigree, <laughs> I don't want to use that word, but the yichas of Mashiach to be blemish-free. If it's going to be a perfect yichas, a perfect family tree, it should be Mashiach's. And yet we find by Mashiach the worst family tree ever. Mashiach comes from a double whammy of incest. Mashiach comes from King David. King David comes from the tribe of Yehuda. Yehuda has more than one child. He had three children, two died. And then the wife of the first one, who became the Yavama, the wife of the second one, later he sent her away, the famous Tamar, a very righteous woman. And then the next thing we know, not of Judah's knowledge, the Torah clearly says that he was tricked, but Tamar knew exactly what she was doing. Tamar gets pregnant from Yehuda. Twins are born. One's called Peretz. From Peretz comes King David, down the lineage, comes Mashiach. 
incest between a father-in-law and a daughter-in-law. That's from one side. That's the father's lineage of King David. Now let's look at the mother lineage, the maternal lineage. We have a story of Lavan. Lavan has incest with his two daughters. Again, he doesn't know. They got him drunk. Bottom line. After, and I'm sorry, not Lavan, Lot. Oh my God, Lot. After Sedom was turned over and Lot was alone with his two daughters, the two daughters didn't know. They thought that this was just like the flood. And what happens? The older one tells the younger one, let us get our father drunk. If not humanity, the human race will be wiped out. The older one gets him drunk and the second one gets him drunk. And what is the name of one of the babies that were born through the incest of one of the daughters? Moab. You remember the story of Ruth? There those that read it every Shavuos, the famous Ruth, the convert. Who is she? The Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. Comes from incest, a father and a daughter. So that would definitely make it into Ripley's, believe it or not. Mashiach comes from a double whammy of incest. What's going on here? What is going on here? I'd like to discuss that whole topic tonight. But again, I with great caution. Number one. I'm going to tell a story because what I'd like to present to you is number one in the world of reality which as we know it today has a very strong touch of evil ever since Adam ate from the tree. The world is in a position where we say Rishaim Govrimbo in this world the wicked are stronger and more prosperous. In the world of reality, sometimes we need to tell a lie in order to tell the truth. Such as, such as, there's an interesting story that I heard. I did not know. I do not know the story is true for a fact. I did not see it in writing, but I heard that the Rebbe once commented to someone that writing in the newspaper true numbers of an event is actually a lie because everyone expects that the newspaper exaggerates. So when they read in the newspaper that there was 100,000 people at this event, you automatically translate that to 50,000. So if you write 50,000, because that's the truth, people are gonna translate it to 25,000. So in order to tell the truth that there was 50,000, you have to write 100,000, so that people, when they read the paper, see 100,000, say, oh, there's probably 50,000 there. And very interesting, well, you have to tell a lie in order to tell the truth, because if you tell the truth, you tell the lie. If I write in the newspaper there was 50,000 people by this event, and I know that people translate the newspaper, which is renowned for its exaggeration, and they're going to translate 25 by being able to tell the truth, I told a lie. Because when I said 50, I actually told people 25, and it's not true. There's actually 50. An interesting phenomenon. Something we're going to talk about now. Fighting fire with fire. Dealing with Klippa, the other side on its terms. Share with you another story. Same vein, because the first point that I want to share with you is when dealing with Klippa, with evil, we sometimes have to put on the mask of evil. Another interesting story. There's a very, very great man, passed away, an unbelievable person. His name was Rabbi Reuven Dunin. He lived in Israel, in Haifa, Chabad Haifa. A whole story. He was sitting on his tractor in jeans, and one day he just decided, this is not life. He got himself up, went to yeshiva. He ended up coming to the Rebbe. He actually ended up becoming very close to the Rebbe. It is quite historical 
the type of relationship that the Rebbe opened up with him. He's one of the few people that the Rebbe gave permission to come into his office whenever he wanted. Very interesting. And he used that. Sometimes he used that. He tells very interesting stories. Uh, before he was going back to Israel, he went, he just couldn't take it. Everyone was packing and he just went knocking on the Rebbe's door. He wanted to have one last moment with the Rebbe. The Rebbe accepted it in a very interesting conversation. So very interesting, this man had a very, very, uh, what's the word I want to use? Uh, he had a very tough tongue, shall we say. He spoke by a Febrengen where not always minors were allowed to sit there. And the Rebbe asked him once, you know, I hear that by Febrengens you speak in a language that's not very Hasidic. Why do you do that? Ruben Dunan answered the Rebbe, because when I febring, I want that my Yetzirah, my evil inclination, should also understand. Very interesting to become holy. And then what matters, what happens when you become holy, is automatically you disconnect from your animalistic side, and your godly side doesn't need the febrengen. Your godly side is very well healthy and connected to God. It's the animalistic side that needs the febrengen. But if you start talking holy, the animalistic side disconnects. That would be kind of going to the doctor with a broken arm and showing him the healthy arm. So he told the Rebbe, I talk the way I talk because I want my Yitzhahara, my evil inclination, to understand what's being said. So I talk to it in its language. So what I'm sharing with you over here is a very interesting concept that sometimes when we deal with Klippa, we need Klippa to understand. Unfortunately, really what happened today in Israel and I don't, I don't, uh, I don't from the pulpit get into politics, but we're not talking about politics here, we're talking about Jewish lives. You know, there's a reason why the Rebbe was of the opinion that with certain people, talking peace is translated into a sign of weakness. And with certain people, you need to talk to them in, that, in their language. If the language is hands, then trying to talk with a voice will be misinterpreted. A very unfortunate bumper sticker I once saw, which said, please don't misinterpret my kindness as stupidity. And we often do that. We find someone kind, we can't believe that kindness really exists, so we interpret it as naive and stupid, and someone waiting to be taken advantage of. In the Middle East, Israel cannot afford to be misinterpreted that way. And therefore, sometimes, the only way to talk the language of peace is through war. Don't mess, it just won't pay. So we find that even though Israel is yearning to talk the language of peace, but unfortunately it needs to speak a different kind of language of peace. A dear friend of mine just uh, sent me an interesting quote from Bibi Netanyahu. If Israel was to put down their arms, there would be no more Israel. If the Arabs were to put down their arms, there would be no more war very deep statement so sometimes we're talking the language we need to be understood and when you talk to someone lesson one-on-one in communication it's not what you say it's what they hear so if you say 50,000 and they hear 25,000 you've lied if you speak peace and they've heard weakness you've lied if you speak holy and the animistic soul hears disconnect, the Fabrengen was a failure. So one perspective of why we need to sometimes take on a certain language, which seems to be less than honest, 
it's because we want to connect with he or she who's hearing it and we need to talk their language and their language is a very different language than ours it's a very weird scenario in the Middle East, in certain countries, you'll see two arch enemies that want to stick a knife into each other's backs, give the infamous kiss on both sides of the cheek. It's a different language. You need to understand that language. An American boy goes to, uh, to uh, Latin countries and opens up a Chabad house. He will fail if he misinterprets the Latin people's language. You know, they have a joke, right? Mi casa es tu casa, but your invitation has just been revoked. It's just, you have to understand language. You have to understand what people mean when they talk. And even though to you that sounds dishonest, but you need to understand what that means. This etica. This etica which is pleasant and this etica which is unpleasant. But if you want to communicate and tell the truth, you better learn the language. So one point of understanding what we're dealing with is that in dealing with the world of lies, a lie is the only way to tell the truth. I write. I take fiction classes. And one of my teachers asked me online, why do you enjoy fiction? And I told them, because to me, fiction is the only way to tell a true story. It's an unbelievable way. In art, you have abstract art. You can tell truths that you can't tell in real art, you can tell in abstract art. In literature, that which you can express through a poem, you can express through direct writing. And we're going to get to that soon. Because what I just spoke to you about was a deeper level of reality, which is circular versus linear. But for a moment, put that on hold. What I want to share first is that sometimes understand the art of communication is not what comes out of your mouth, but what goes into the other person's ear. Make sure that they understand what you're saying. And unfortunately, again, in the Middle East, life depends upon being well understood and not misunderstood. So the first thing we share is that Yaakov was dealing with a very interesting world, the world of Esav. Nevertheless, I do want to share with you a very painful verse in the story. And the verse says that and Isaac did not know it was Jacob because of the hands of Esau and he blessed him. But we just told the whole story, right? We just told the whole story, the voice of the voice of Jacob and then under the hands of the hands of Esau. Why that repetitious verse? And some sages are very tough on Jacob because as well as you did what you did, it actually, they interpret this verse as a very deep patch a slap to Jacob saying and the reason why your father didn't recognize you is because you donned the hands of Esau Esau is deceitful bottom line you Jacob just lowered yourself into the deceitful world of Esau so actually that verse the last words of the story before it says and Isaac blessed him is actually a, a, a pinch. It's a slap. We understand this had to be done, but bottom line, Jacob, you left your holy domain, you entered into the deceitful domain of Esau, and that's why your father didn't recognize you. Something to remember. 
So what I'm sharing with you in level A of tonight's class, again, very careful, very, very careful. It doesn't mean that we have a right to do what shouldn't be done. I'm hesitating when I should tell you the story, even though with you people I'm making eye contact, this is being recorded, and I don't make eye contact with those people. But with that, again, disclaimer, I want to tell you a story that I personally am not allowed to smile upon, but I deeply do. I know the story, I know the people involved. You know, in Jewish law, we have a huge problem. A woman needs a divorce, a get. If not, she can't remarry. And many times men will use that as extortion. Well, if the family gives me $50 million, I'll sign the get. I happen to know a story. I know the individuals personally. Where the boy did this to the girl. The woman, they had to get divorced. They got civilly divorced. The woman had a child with him and everything. And then when it came to signing the get, this story happened in Israel. She went back to her parents in America, in Park, I believe. And he wouldn't give her a get. She happened to be a young woman. She happened to be a very good woman. And uh, all of a sudden, the father-in-law sent a message to his ex-son-in-law. According to Jewish law, there are two ways that a woman is freed from her husband. One is by becoming a divorce. The other one is by becoming a widow. Please choose your way. He thought, yeah, right, in America. Well, this person had a cousin with the same name, and they were both redheads. And all of a sudden, his cousin got beaten up and put into the hospital. And he realized that his cousin was put in the hospital, a mistake that was meant for him. And he realized if strike one doesn't work, there's going to be a strike two. He happens to be dealing with an ex-father-in-law, which is quite extreme, and he signed a get. Can I smile on that story? No, publicly not. Privately? Absolutely. The man did what he had to do for his daughter. Here's a very interesting case. Where the man spoke a language where the other man will understand. Of course, it's not the right way. Bottom line, he took him to court, he did everything, and the guy was doing what he did, and he had a choice. Either I'm going to be honest and have my daughter stuck for the rest of her life, or I'm going to be dishonest so that that dishonest man understands how honest people work, and I let my daughter go free. I want to say that again. Or I'm going to be dishonest. So that that other dishonest man understands how honest people work, and I'll let my daughter free. So what I'm advocating here is an extremely dangerous thing. And in order to put this extremely dangerous thing in proper context, I want to, in context, I want to introduce you to a very interesting law that we learn out of a story. The story is in the Chumash, where after Bilam the infamous prophet who tried to curse the Jews couldn't succeed and then he told the man who hired him King Balak that I couldn't succeed in cursing the Jews but I can definitely do some damage because the God of the Jewish people he hates he hates perversion send down your girls let them also go down with their idols let them entice let them create perversion and in the midst of passion, let them also pull out their idols. So you now you have a, dummy, a double whammy of perversion together with uh, idolatry. 
and Jews will die and that's what the king did and Jews died now in that story if you remember the Torah tells us that the prince of the tri- a prince of the tribe of Shimon right the name is Zimri he goes ahead and he takes a woman and he goes ahead and he asks Moses he taunts Moses publicly am I allowed to be this with this woman yes or no and if not, I'm not allowed to be with this woman then who exactly gave you permission to marry a Midianite doesn't your beautiful wife come from Midian daughter of Yisro priest of Midian and he took the woman into the tent and everyone knew exactly what he was going to do and that's what he did with her turns around Moses turned silent he was speechless and turns around his nephew great nephew actually Pinchas the son of Elazar the son of Aaron and he tells Moses did you not teach us zealots reach out in the act and Moses looked at him and said you're right he who read the proclamation of the king must act on it and he took a spear and he put it through them as they were together one spear through both their bodies what exactly did Pinchas tell Moses? He told him, Kenoyim Pogimboy, zealots, he who is a true zealot for the name of God, is the one that kills him. Now here's a very interesting thing. We have to look in Jewish law. Jewish law says, Halacha ve'en moedim came. It's a law, but don't teach it. Which means if, Mo- if Pinchas would have asked Moses, what am I supposed to do? Moses would tell him, sit down. Don't do nothing. Let the master of the garden prune his own garden. Let God take care of this. But that's not what he asked. He didn't ask, what should I do? So here's an interesting case where the law says that you don't teach this law. But if it's done, it's the correct thing. The Rebbe Blessed Memory focuses on one thing. If it's a law that you don't teach, that means it transcends law, why is it in the law? And here's the point I'm trying to make. Because even that which is zealousness and above law must be in law or it's off limits to us. The law must say that a zealot does this and the fact that a zealot has to do it means it's not something we teach. We don't teach zealousness. You either have it or you don't. And if the law would not say that this is the law, then we would kill the zealot for doing it. We would not award him. Who asked you to kill the guy? But he was not your business, God's business. So what I'm sharing with you here is that if I don't have in the Torah telling me that in this situation the lie is the honesty, the truth, then I have to go along with the truth even knowing that's going to be misinterpreted as a, as a lie. If Jacob's story wouldn't be in the Torah, you and I would not be having this discussion. I am about to introduce you that this transcends beyond what we know Torah to be, because Torah is called Torah Emet, the Torah of truth. So how can truth advocate a lie? We need to deal with that. But even that in the Jew's life, which demands zealousness, which demands dishonesty for the sake of honesty, must have its roots in the Torah of honesty, or it's off limits to a Jew. Even though I know it's the right thing. And by the way, we have this case in Jewish law. In Jewish law, when the rabbis know that the man is lying, but they can't prove it, 
they're stuck in that situation. They need to surrender to God. Because the Torah is what dictates our reality. And that's why in a courthouse, in the Jewish courthouse, there's no such thing as teshuva. Because I can't see into your heart. I need to surrender that to God. I am stuck doing the law. Teshuva or not teshuva, the law is the law. In certain cases, obviously. So what I'm presenting to you here is a very interesting phenomenon. In the Torah, which is called the Torah of Truth, if there's going to be any time that Yaakov has to do an act of dishonesty, it's going to have to be mentioned in the Torah. And we're going to have to struggle with that, because how can the Torah of Truth tell us in righteousness the story of Jacob, the man of truth, fooling his father? He's being deceitful. And of course, we all learned the Rashi, that when he said, Jacob said, Isaac asked him, who are you? And he said, I, pause. Esau is your firstborn. It's all beautiful. It's all beautiful, but that story is problematic. Because in Jewish law, there's not just a prohibition to lie, there's a prohibition called Genevat Dat. I steal your mind. I know that I am misleading you. So I can say, hey, I didn't lie. Didn't you hear me? I, Esau is your firstborn. All beautiful. Bottom line is that Asa, that Isaac absolutely gave that blessing to Jacob, thinking that Jacob was Asaph. That's deceit. And that's prohibited. And yet the Torah tells us the story. So the first point I made is that sometimes we need to be dishonest so that dishonesty understands the honest truth. That was the first part of this class tonight. I very carefully defined that you and I do not have the right to decide that. Torah has to decide it for us. And if Torah doesn't decide it for us, we're going to have to tell the honest truth knowing that's going to be misinterpreted as the worst lie. But if Torah tells us that we can find in Torah where, then and only then do we have the right to be dishonest so that dishonesty can understand the honest ways of God. Now I want to share with you a whole different a whole different twist on it. Remember I mentioned to you before the difference between regular writing and poetry? Art and abstract art. You have the same in music. What is going on there? What, what does abstract art have that art doesn't have? What does poetry have that, that real straightforward writing doesn't have? What is it? If I were to try to define this in Kabbalah language, I would define it as the difference between the circular light and the linear light. The linear light is finite and orderly. The circular light is infinite and it's circular. In simple understanding, in the world of knowledge, for example, intellect, there is grasping the idea, I totally get it. That is linear. If I can say those words, I totally get it, it's linear. But then there always is that different level of, of art, of music, of intellect, of, of everything. Where I get it, I get it, I get it, and I don't get it. Because it's always just elusive. You know, I, I think in pictures. In pictures, it's like that guy who's trying to capture the moon's reflection on the water. He runs there and he caught it, and there he sees it's right on top again. That's the same with our mind. Epis, epis, I get it, I get it, but I don't get it. And the more I get it, the more I realize I don't get it. 
And it's a very interesting, romantic relationship between the mind and God's wisdom. I get it, I get it, but I don't get it. You'll find that in Hasidus so many times. You'll find how, how, how you really struggle on understanding, but because it's the human mind trying to embrace divine intellect, it's always that Or HaMakif, it's the circular light. It's kind of like faith. Faith is a very funny thing. You can't get faith. If I try to intellectually explain to you why you should have faith, that's a weird conversation. Faith and intellect aren't exactly soulmates. You don't believe what you know. You don't know what you believe. And that faith is, if faith is so dependent upon surrender, which is an absolute opposite of intellect. In faith, you have to leave go to get. In intellect, you have to roll up your sleeves and work hard and study and question, do it again. That circular is a very interesting relationship we have with it. You're going to find so many times in the Torah that concept. Al-Tanya and Tanya, the most difficult chapters in Tanya, in the entire book of Tanya, the most difficult chapters are the ones that talks about how to deal with suffering. It's a very difficult. He has a famous letter number 11, Askil Chabina, and then he has his chapters 27. He has these difficult chapters where he embraces how we deal with suffering. And he introduces over there something called the hidden world, the hidden light. And he talks about how that world is infinite. So the toiv, the goodness of the hidden world, expresses itself in this world through pain. And I always was bothered by that. I understand it's infinite good, but why does it have to come down as pain? Just a simple example. Have someone shine a bright light into your eyes, what's going to happen? Now, if we define light as good, a bright light in your eyes, you're going to immediately, ah! Because it's good, but it's infinite good. And infinite good to finite creatures expresses itself painfully. So we have here such an unbelievable dichotomy. Infinite good is experienced as pain. Finite good feels good. How can good, infinite good, express itself in pain? And that's kind of the secret of, of, of the worlds. The spirituality, the divinity, to fit the infinite into the finite, the circle into the box. And that's the mandate of the Jewish people. The nations of the world were given seven mitzvot. The seven mitzvot define itself in one Yiddish phrase. Zai a mensch. Just be decent. Don't kill. Don't steal. In Judaism, we define the definition of the, our commandments is not. The, my mom says that from every mitzvah we have to learn how to be a mensch. But if you think about it in the greater scope and other opinions, mitzvah is not about being a mensch. It's about a verse that would borrow from the Shema. Kimea Shemaim Allah to live heavenly days on this earth. And that's why many things that we do is not understood in common sense. It's actually contrary to common sense. 
Because common sense comes from one place of reality, where the center is egocentric survival, and this comes from a total different place, theocentric, selflessness, surrender. So, so many mitzvahs that we do are actually contrary to what conventional wisdom will tell you. When we talk about the infinite into the finite, it's got to work somehow. There is an unbelievable teaching that the reason why Mashiach comes from such incestuous relationships is because it had to be snuck in the back door. It could not have a grand ballroom reception because the finite would not embrace the infinite. On a deeper level, a world of klipa would not allow Mashiach to step in. A world of wickedness is not here to oh, welcome Mashiach, we've been waiting for you so long to wipe us out. So here we have a very interesting concept. According to Kabbalah, Esau and Yaakov are the manifestation of two different worlds. Esau is the higher world of chaos, and Yaakov is the lower world of orderliness, tikkun. And that is why Isaac loved Esau. And that is why, when, if you read the history, when, when Esau died, what happened? He was beheaded. And the Talmud says, his head rolled into the breast of Isaac. Because the source of Esau, before it manifested itself in his redhead, hairy craziness, was actually higher than high. Esau is actually more spiritual than Jacob. Because he comes from the world of Tohu, which is the world of chaos. And the world of chaos is where the lights have no restriction. So put that in the arms of Esau, and what happens? Esau lived the life of I want what I want and I want it now and there is no right and wrong because there is no limitations, there isn't curbing your appetite. So murder, adultery, was all just expressions because he couldn't express himself in a normal life. He was a man of chaos. And therefore Yaakov wanted to bless him directly thinking if I bless him. I just want to give you a parenthetically a beautiful metaphor. Good teachers, good teachers, not lazy teachers, good teachers are always intrigued by the intelligent, courageous troublemaker. A teacher doesn't like playing chutzpah. Sit down. No, you're going to make me? Ah, whatever. So that's out of the question. Let's put that aside right now. But then there is the bright, courageous troublemaker. A good teacher will like that kid a lot more than he likes the goody-two-shoes. Because a good teacher knows that in that boy or girl lies a future leader if I can just capture, redirect, transform. And no, forgive my language, a good teacher is not looking to neuter that troublemaker kid. Because then, again, what do we have? He's looking to completely capture that kid. I like what you have. Can you use it in the right place? So Isaac really was in love with Esau. Just like any teacher is in love with the brilliant, courageous troublemaker. 
uh, what's that? Uh, what's it called? Um, ulcer. <laughs> ulcer giving kid. Rivka understood that her husband is right, but in this world, if you're going to give direct power to chaos, we got a problem. So she understood that Isaac's intention of capturing and redefining chaos will only work if Jacob gets the blessing and then it will be him to transform, direct, internalize the powers of chaos. So Isaac was looking into the infinite worlds. You know that Isaac was blind in his elder years. According to Kabbalah, that's what it means. Isaac was not able to see evil. He was so defined. So what happens here is that he wasn't seeing what will happen in this world. Do you know how many good intentions in this world turned out to be the worst of worst? If one would think about socialism, <laughs> that's a utopia if man, man can live like that, maybe. And on paper, maybe it was great. Marxism on paper may have been the cutest thing ever. But in reality, in an egocentric world, it doesn't work. So while Isaac was blind to reality, but very, very insightful on the abstract, chaotic, unbelievable, infinite stuff, Rebecca had her eyes open down here. And Rebecca knew that my husband's wishes will only come true if I intervene and do exactly not what he's doing. Isaac wants Asaph, but you can't go direct. It needs to go through Jacob. The problem is that how can Jacob, a man of orderliness, absorb chaos? And thus we find Rivka painfully telling her son of honesty to don the hands of deceitfulness. Thus we have the perfection of all humanity being brought into the world through incest. You know, I saw an amazing YouTube, a lecture of Viktor Frankl. Familiar with the name Viktor Frankl? Viktor Frankl wrote the famous book, Man's Search for Purpose, Meaning. So I actually once wanted, after I read his book, I wanted to, is there anything of him? And I caught a little clips of a lecture he gave to a college class. And this is what he was explaining. I'd like to share it with you for tonight's class. He said that he actually was, his friend took him on a two-seater plane. And his friend explained to him that if you want to land at point A, you need to steer your plane to point B. Because if you take in consideration the wind factor, you'll end up by point A. Wow. So if you want to land at point A, you're going to have to aim for point B. Because when you take in the outer forces impact, then you'll end up at point A. There are times when you need to lie to yourself. There are times when you should not be honest with yourself. You know, people who have come here before have heard me speak about recovery program and all that stuff. 
And when you talk about recovery to an addict, alcoholic, drug, whatever it is, you can never tell them, yes, you're never going to pick up a drink forever. So what they talk about is one day. Can you just be sober today? One of the tricks that the alcoholic tells himself is, or the drug addict, or the sex addict, or the workaholic, or the food addict, whatever. Addicts come, addiction comes in all forms of shape. What they always say is, you know what? Tell yourself that tomorrow you'll do it. Just hold out till tomorrow. You're literally lying to yourself. Because if you tell yourself the truth, I will never have another drink. That is the strongest reason to have a drink right now. I will share with you, in my own life, when I was younger, I used to smoke cigarettes. <laughs> I'm not talking about anything else. I used to smoke cigarettes. It was in the times I was 22 to 24. I used to use them to stay up, to do my tests. I was taking them my rabbinical tests, and I'm not justifying it. I'm just telling you the fact as it is. And I realized I could not give up smoking. And I will tell you what worked for me was to tell myself, you know what? It isn't the worst thing in the world. I'll smoke. I'm not going to give up smoke. It was only when I embraced the fact that I'm not giving up smoking that I realized I was able to forego one cigarette, two cigarettes, and I haven't smoked in over two decades. I had to lie to myself. I knew deep down what I really wanted, but I couldn't tell that to myself because it won't happen. It's kind of like Chinese handcuffs. You familiar with the Chinese handcuffs? You used to play with them as kids, right? You have bamboo with two fingers. You pull, it's going to lock you in. You don't pull, and you'll get out. To be able, as a linear creature, to embrace circular powers, you can't go direct. You need to go indirect. You need to aim for point B in order to end up by point A. So a lot of what we're hearing in this parsha, Asa was born first and Jacob tricked him and bought from him the firstborn rights for a plate of beans. Asaph is going to get the blessing from Isaac because truthfully said, Asaph is much more identical to Isaac. They were both the embodiment of Givura, strength, strictness, power, only that Isaac was in a good sense, Asaph was not in a good sense. And Jacob has to deceit his father. He has to be deceitful to his father in order to get the blessings. But not because Jacob didn't agree to his father. And not because Rebecca didn't agree to her husband. It's because they did agree. But they saw Jacob aiming for point A, not taking consideration the dark realities of this world. That you're going to end up by B. You're going to end up giving a blessing to rape, murder, stealing, because that's chaos when it's not absorbed in the right way. That's exactly what chaos is. So they say, no, we're going to have to trick Jacob, Isaac. We're going to have to trick him. Let me close up this class with something practical. I mentioned to you a little bit about the cigarettes. You know, I want to talk about both levels of the class. Remember the first level I spoke? Sometimes you have to talk to dishonesty in a dishonest way so that they can hear honesty. And then I want to talk about it on the higher light 
absorbing the higher light, right? Those are the two parts of this class. So let's talk about something practical in the first level. You know, as a parent, I always wanted to educate my children. I have six of them, God bless them. I always wanted to educate them where I don't have to tell them no. I want to explain to them why I'm saying no so that they will understand and come to their own conclusion, no. And I came across the most beautiful thing that children have. Yeah, Tati, I understand, but, but I want it. And they have this shy smile when they say it because they know. And I realized <laughs> it can't work that way. I can't expect a 12-year-old to be able to embrace and appreciate what I understand at the age of 45. Because as bright as my kid is, and he may be far brighter than me, but there's something that they just can't understand. They just presently can't understand. Because the Talmud says, There's no wise person as a person with experience. And Chassidim knew that. Chassidim would quicker by a Fabrengen listen to a wagon driver, a balagola, with experience than to a young scholar. They wouldn't hear a shiur. They wouldn't hear a lecture from the wagon driver. But by a fabrengen where IQ and EQ consummate, they wanted to hear what the wagon driver has to say. The life he's been through. How he sees God. How he per perceives Yiddishkeit. And then a lecture will go to the, the rabbi, the young rabbi who's a genius. So sometimes we need to embrace that. We need to embrace that sometimes to tell the story, the real story, you're not going to be able to do it without fiction. Fiction provides the teller an alter ego so that he's not interfered, no interference with telling a true story. And that's something we have to embrace. We have to embrace it with our children. We have to sometimes embrace it with our spouses. We have to embrace it with ourselves. That sometimes fiction is the only way to tell a true story. I want to just put one more little drop of salt onto this part of the lecture. I've read huge amounts of books, relatively speaking, about the Holocaust. There is no book that hit me like the comic book called Moise. Where the child of a survivor writes the story in comic form. The cat and the mouse. The Jews being the mouse. And I asked myself, why? Why did this book really shatter me? When I read direct stories, memoirs, it didn't shatter me. And I'll tell you why. Because the minute I pick up a Holocaust book, there is a piece of my mind that knows, uh-oh, warning, 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 protect yourself. And it puts up slamming gates. So even though I'm reading it and I'm personalizing it, it's already being filtered by the mind's unbelievable power of protecting me from myself. When you pick up a comic book, that's very tricky because your mind is not re yet realizing protect yourself. You see how dishonesty is sometimes the only way to be honest? You see sometimes how fiction is the only way to tell a true story? There's a reason why Hasidim answer questions more with stories than with answers. Because if I give you an answer to your question, you already put up a whole military defense force because I'm not so sure you want to hear my answer. A story knows how to slip its way through the defense force and let you hear the answer. On the other hand, I want to talk about the second half. The second half is that sometimes when we're dealing 
with spiritual experiences greater than ourselves. Sometimes we need to know how to surrender rather than to grab. The Talmud tells the story of the man who had a dream of an elephant fitting through the eye of a needle. The elephant remained the size of an elephant, the eye of the needle remained the size of the eye of a needle, and in his dream he saw the elephant without becoming smaller, the eye of a needle without becoming bigger, crossing through each other. And in Kabbalah and Hasidus we explain, because the subconscious is circular, it's not stuck with the linear common sense of the conscious. Therefore, we can see in our dreams that which we cannot hear. I will tell you from personal experience that I can tell you for a fact, after a studious night of really studying hard, going to sleep and waking it up, sometimes when you wake up, there's the sixth sense of what you were studying just happened to absorb. It just happened to permeate, I mean, your being. Sometimes we need to leave go of the conscious, I want to understand, question, answer. Let's do this logical, let's do it methodical. Sometimes we need to be able to hear Hasidus tell a story, sing its song, and not give me direct answers. That's a different power of dishonesty. Again, I want to share with you one more point on this, just for salt. There's an unbelievable book called Drawing with the Right Side of Your Brain. And in that, the artist, I think her name is Betty, Betty, I'm not sure what her name is. I have the book in my house. And she says something there, unbelievable. She says, the biggest problem with drawing is, is that your left side of your brain, which is dominant due to our education system, academia, far squashes the arts. And therefore, you're taught that arts is a losing battle. Leave it alone. Academia, methodical, logical. And what happens is that later that comes to bite you when you're an artist. Because your logical brain knows that the four legs to that table are all the same size. But if you try to draw a table with four legs the same size, it's going to look horrible. So what you need to do is you need to make the two back legs shorter to create depth. But the left side of your brain is saying, what are you, crazy? Why are you making it shorter? So what actually in that book was trying to teach you is how to trick the left side of your brain. One other thing it tells you is, if you're drawing something, turn it upside down. It'll totally confuse the left side of your brain. Another thing it tells you is, when you want to draw a chair, don't draw the positive, draw the negative. For example, this chair right here, don't draw the handle, draw the hole inside the handle, between the handle and the chair. Then draw the outside, so you're not drawing actually the legs, you're drawing the square emptiness in between the legs. And what will come out at the end is the legs. And the reason you're doing that is, is because your left side of your brain has no idea how to deal with that. It doesn't know how to draw emptiness. So it just gives up and lets the right brain do what it has to. And once the right brain can do what it has to, you have magnificent art. What you're hearing over here is that the left side of the brain is bina, understanding, dissecting. It's linear. It's logical. It's methodological. The right side of your brain is creative. It's circular. But the right side of the brain cannot be subjected to the finite narrowness of the left side of the brain and be able to express itself. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to create tricks to shut down the left side of the brain so that the right side of the brain can happen. Kind of like, let's create an ancestral 
relationship so Mashiach can be brought into the human race. Very scary what I'm saying, but it's just the way Kabbalah deals with it. Forgive me. I'm definitely not going to ever advocate marijuana. But you ever wonder why artists are so... They just feel so imprisoned. I'm not talking about the artists who, who smoke and do crack because of the problems with the public life and all the uh, paparazzi. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about way before that. They, they were yearning for something. It's unbelievable how we read works of these masters in art. And we're marveling and they're disgusted by what they wrote. It's such a pale shadow of what they really felt. Whether he did or didn't cut off his ear and tape it on and all the different theories whether he had an epileptic attack or anything, I'd like the version that no, he did what he did with pain because he wanted to put a piece of himself onto that canvas. The right side of the brain can do it, the left side of the brain can't do it. He was stuck as an infinite circle in a finite world and it was painful. Without Yaakov, Esau is painful. So sometimes we have to learn how to do that. We have to learn how to put a circle into a square. Do you know where you and I are frustrated by that? I'll tell you where you and I are frustrated by it. How do you fit infinite spirituality in a finite dictated religion? More and more you start to hear people say that religion is the biggest enemy of spirituality. Where in religion itself do you feel it most? You know where you feel it most? In prayer. In prayer. Prayer is supposed to be an intimate conversation between a child and a parent. Do you tell me why these rabbis wrote a book telling me what to say, when to say it, how to stand, when to say it? Hello? It's not really romantic when you have someone dictating every move you got to do. There's no spontaneous, there's no expression of inner feelings. But what the rabbis were doing was exactly what Rebecca did to Isaac. You allow people to express their own uninhibited feelings in prayer and you're going to get in big trouble. Because chaos, especially post the 60s, ain't going to be looking like a spiritual prayer to God. But again, what I'm trying to share is sometimes we need to trick the left side of the brain. But again, I must forewarn. Everything needs to be processed through the mandate and dictation of finite Torah laws. If not, we're in trouble. If not, prayers are going to become marijuana circles, dancing and drinking and blood, and I don't want to go any further than that. Because chaos, chaos allowed to just express itself is very painful. It may start off beautiful, just like everyone who deals with drugs, the first puff is great, and then it becomes hell. So chaos cannot be allowed, even the first puff. But take it after that. If we don't learn how to be able to trick the left side of the brain, if I don't know how to trick the left side of the brain that when you're sitting in shul and all you want to do is everything right, if I can't trick that left side of the brain, and allow an intimate expression of real love and spirituality between God to me and me to God, I didn't pray. So you have both sides of the coin. Again, a little concerned about this whole class, but I'm putting it out there, and God protect.
Thank you.